over the weekend, or not the weekend, over the winter break, rather, I, I spent the time watching uh, with my girls what is by far the very best of all of the Harry Potter movies, that is, The, the Prisoner of Azkaban. I don't want to hear any, any, any contradictions. Um, in addition to being one of the most well-crafted of, not just that movie, but like one of the, one of the most well-crafted movies, the popular movies um, I've ever seen, this movie is highly regarded because of the way in which it depicts uh, the climactic events um, that take up about the last third of the movie. And one of the unique things about this movie is how it depicts those events twice. That first, uh, you get one perspective in, in the telling of that story, and then it retells everything from an additional perspective. And it's that second telling that lends all, all insight and answers many questions and gives uh, and gives you details that you weren't aware of the first time. Now, if you haven't seen it, take, I mean, you can't take my word for it. This movie's amazing, one of the, made by one of the best directors working today. But anyways, that art of telling a story from multiple perspectives um, hasn't been something that's, that's been done in film a ton. I mean, the idea of telling the same story over and over through multiple perspectives is quite common in literature. Think of like mystery novels and things. But in film, it doesn't happen quite too often, or at least it didn't until a film uh, made, by Akira, made by Akira Kurosawa called, somebody knows it, Rashomon, uh, debuted in 1951. And that was one of the first movies that ever do this. Because the visual medium is tricky to pull this off, and it was one of the, uh, one of the hallmarks and so, of, of, um, of film. So even though we may consider contemporary filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, he does this quite a bit. You think of his movies, uh, things like Memento, Dunkirk, there's even some of this in The Prestige, or several movies from Quentin, from Quentin Tarantino. I won't mention his movies, but uh, he self-admittedly ripped off this technique from, from Kurosawa. But the very idea of retelling a good story from multiple perspectives, getting different versions of the same events, that is very much how we are to understand Genesis chapter 2. Uh, this is a retelling of a certain part of the creation account, in particular, um, the creation of man. Genesis 2 is also the start of the general narrative, like the, the narrative of the book of Genesis that we tend to associate uh, with this book. It all begins here as both a companion to chapter 1, uh, but it gives us truly an earthbound perspective of the creation of man. If you recall last week in the reading of Genesis chapter 1, we saw how God was revealed as this singular creator and king, and how this creator who creates all things, he takes this primordial uh, chaos, the, the very stuff of creation that he creates, he takes the raw materials of this realm of earth, and he fashions a sensible world. He spent six days of his labor separating and fashioning space in the first three days, and then the next three days filling that space. And we saw also how on the sixth day he appointed man as a ruler of the earth. It says that he created man in his royal image, a kingly image, and set him to take dominion and reign over this place. And in doing so, it was man's task to spread the knowledge and the image of God uh, across the four corners of the earth. 
Genesis 1, of course, concluded with God looking out at his work, declaring it very good, and then entering into a never-ending seventh day of rest. And that first chapter really does give us this grand overview, this panoramic perspective. It's the wide shot of all of creation. But Genesis 2 now is going to retell that story, um, focusing primarily, once again, on the creation of man and woman and the task that they've been set forth on. Uh, And it's in this revelation of the creation of man that we start to begin to see more detail regarding um, the purpose for which we were made. We get a vision here for why we were created. Genesis 2 puts more meat on the bone of what it means to be made in God's image. What is good about our creation? Um, And hopefully it will also help us to see how our faith uh, in Christ can be strengthened as we look at this account and we consider the story and the history that it's telling. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 4, under three headings. The first of which is point number one, a garden in need of a gardener. A garden in need of a gardener. It's important that we recognize how the proper beginning of the story is verse 4. It's not, it's not verse 1. Verse 4 begins with a phrase that, sh- that will become familiar if it's not already to you, that these are the generations of, and in this case, the heavens and the earth. This is the first time this phrase appears, um, and this is a language of genealogies. You might have considered that before, but what you might not have considered is how this phrase really is the introductory line that organizes all of Genesis. This phrase appears 10 times in Genesis, and every time it appears, that's, that introduces a new section of the book. Um, those 10 times, it introduces a lineage or a group of people, and then it goes on to tell the story of that group of people. And so here, in its first use, we see how it tells the story of, of those um, born as the pinnacle of creation, those who are born of the heavens and the earth. Adam, who will come to be called Eve in chapter 3, and their immediate offspring. The story of Adam and Eve, as well as their first offspring, that's going to carry from here in, in, in chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to chapter, chapter 4, to the end. And so the proper introduction, once again, is, is verse 4. These are the generations of Now, verse 5 opens up with this fresh and new perspective. This is now changing the shot that we are focused on. So the story, the focus of the story is shifting here in verse 5. And um, as I mentioned, I was talking to Dave earlier. I read a ton ton of commentaries about this introduction here, about uh, verses 5, 6, and and 7, and how to take it. And you read a bunch of stuff, and people overcomplicate this issue. Um, Verse 5 is going to use a literary tactic to try and explain or, or, or to give us a brand new introduction to the creation of man um, and, and woman. What's going on here is the presentation of a bit of a summary statement um, that gives justification to why it was necessary for God, or why, not necessary, but, but why God created uh, the man and the woman. There's, it's telling history, but it's doing so with a bit of a literary and artistic flair. It introduces things in this way. When there was no 
bush of the field yet in the land, and no small plant of the oh, sorry, but there was no yeah bush of the field yet in the land, and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up. Now that might not be immediately clear what's going on there, but he's telling he's saying something to the effect of it's not once upon a time as though it's fantasy, but it is a way of saying a long time ago, long long ago, so long ago there was no bush in the field. There was no weed. There were no wild shrubs. Nothing had naturally grown wild uh, on the earth. There was none of that in the land, and there was also no, no small plant of the field, and that might, that might be more difficult. What it's talking about, there was also um, a time when there were no crops. That's an agricultural term. There were, back when there was no raw bushes and, or no wild bushes, and when there were no crops, where there was neither wild shrubs, nor cultivated uh, greenery. And you know that's the case because he gives the reason why those two things has happened. While there was, there was no wild, and, there was no wild uh, greenery because the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no uh, agriculture because there was no man to work the ground. It's just his way of framing this, this, this tale he's going, to, he's going to spin back um, in the early days, when these two things were true, back when that was true, God decided to go about uh, and to produce those things that we're familiar with. It describes how God resolves those two, those two issues of, of the early earth. He says in verse 6, well, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, that's a tough one to, to, to understand, but... Um, don't get confused by your English translations. It simply means that um, back when there was no field, there was no, or where there was no bush of the field, there was no wild, uh, wild plants. Well, God caused rain to go up from to go up, and to water the face of the ground. The way in God, res- the way God resolved the lack of greenery was to produce rain, um, and for the rain to yield uh, all things that are green. That's simply what that means. So God resolves the problem of there being no wild plants by sending forth rain. But then he also has to resolve the problem of there being no, no, no agriculture, no cultivated plants. And he fixes that problem by creating man, by creating one who will, in essence, take dominion and, uh, and cultivate the earth. Then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. To begin the cultivation of the earth, to subdue the earth, as we heard back in chapter 1, God creates man from the dust. In this special creation, he breathes life into him uh, to work on the earth in a similar fashion to the way God worked in those six days of chapter 1. And if you remember his work, what did God do? Well, he separated, um, he ordered, and then he filled. He brought his creation, which started as chaotic waters, he brought it in into subjection. He subdued it. He took dominion over it. He organized it. And similarly, he creates man as the king of all creation to do this sort of thing, to take dominion, to rule the earth, um, to take charge of the ground. In essence, he creates a gardener to take full dominion over the plants and over the ground. To properly train him, therefore, 
as this gardener, God plants for himself, as the text goes on to explain, a garden. And he chooses this place called Eden for the garden. It's repeated twice, both in verse 8 and in verse 15. It says that God places the man there in that garden, in essence, to begin his, apprentice, to begin his apprenticeship in dominion. Um, that he creates a garden so that he can place the gardener in it and train that gardener um, how to subdue the earth, how to go about his work, imaging God in the way that he is to rule and govern all things. And there's a simplicity and a beauty in the way this story is, is being told. So everything is being framed by this idea of, of there being a garden and a gardener. And all the green thumbs here, everyone who's really interested in that sort of thing, say, say amen. I mean, this opening of the story does testify to our close relation to the created world. And that relationship, as we've heard from Genesis 1, is one that is good. That the world is good. It is given as a gift to man. And that, is, um, and that this, this chapter here is instructive for us who do indeed love the earth. I mean, we spent one whole book study uh, looking at the Supper of the Lamb and trying to help draw that out of us, of, of, of loving what God has declared good. And even before the fall, before things get complicated, um, that we have this simple image of God training man um, to work the earth, to take dominion over it. And that dominion is taken in all, in all uh, upright, uh, upright and righteousness and holiness and perfection. This is a story of a garden and a gardener. But it's not just that, because in point number two, I want us to see that there's more uh, to the story than, than horticulture. There's more than horticulture. It's amazing that in this story, the man finds himself quite literally planted in a garden uh, by God, by the, by the hand of God. But once he gets about to his work, and when we learn more details about this garden, the imagery starts to shift. Um, it starts to move from just mere garden and gardener to other things happening, uh, more, more overtly religious details that we should pick up on. We learn about this place, this garden in Eden. There are some, there are some very striking details. The first thing that we learn is that the layout of the garden is, is emphasized, and there's there's a lot of significance given to the layout, in particular, how there's a focus on the center of this, of this garden. Um, among all the various trees and plants that God causes to sprout up, two of those trees carry special, special significance and are named in verse 9. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll likely talk more about those trees uh, next week, but for now... The important thing is the location of these trees. These two are found in the midst, or in the middle, in the center of this garden. Um, when we think about all that's going to happen in verse 3, all that's going to take place in the very center of, of the garden. That's where one of these trees is eaten from. That's where God speaks. Um, and if we think about this as like along a horizontal plane, you have the the borders and the boundaries of the garden, and right in the middle is where these trees and where all the action is going to unfold. So very clearly, um, the layout of this garden is important. 
But secondly, it's also curious that this place called Eden, where the garden is placed in, it also appears to be some sort of mountain. Um, that there, it's not just a, a vertical, I'm sorry, a horizontal plane, but there's a vertical reality taking place here as well. It says in verse 10 that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and they were divided and became four rivers. I think in our language, we tend to use garden and Eden synonymously, and that's okay. We might use one to refer to the other. But technically, and according to the detail, Eden is a pre-existing place, and is a place where God then places or plants his garden. This is likely, um, as we'll see, a mountain. And for the waters that flow down from the top of that mountain, from, from the peak of the mountain, flows down to water the rest of the garden. So imagine, if you will, as though there's this, there's this peak, there's this mountain, and God takes this large blanket and places it and drapes it over that mountain, and that's the placement of the garden upon the mountain. And if those two things are true, then it places the very center also at the very top, at the peak, um, with the garden draped along the rest of the mountain. If that's the case, where there's this great significance placed at the very top, um, then there's a second section which is still holy, which is still significant because it's the garden. And then there's this other place, and we have four other locations named that go further out from that mountain. Well, it seems to be structuring the very earth as though it's like a temple. And that imagery is very important for us to understand. If it seems as though the garden and Eden and the ends of the earth, the four corners of the earth, are organized like a temple, well, it's important because they are. The top and the center, once again, is that most holy space. That's where God is going to come to speak um, to Adam. That's where these two significant trees are, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is, in essence, a holy of holies upon the earth. The holy space that goes further down the mountain, um, that is the rest of the garden. That's that the, waters are, that, that the waters that flow from the center immediately touch first. And then beyond that holy space, um, if we were to consider this a temple, beyond that space, it's something like the court of the Gentiles. I mean, the temple is organized the same way, holy of holy in the middle. Then there's, an, then, 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 then there's one holy space where the priests work. Um, and then there's a court of the Gentiles where all can come in um, and participate in worship. Also of great significance of this story is that there is water flowing from the very center and the very top of this mountain temple. And if that idea sounds familiar, well, then you've read your Bible well, because it, it, it certainly should. We have other places where there's visions, whether it's in Ezekiel, when he, prophesied, when he prophesies regarding the temple in the future. And the significance of his vision is that there is water flowing from the Holy of Holies that goes out into the rest of the world. It flows out to the earth, living waters um, that raise the dead. A river of water flowing from even the tree of life is also something that's found in Revelation 21. I mean, part of the vision of the end is cast in these you know, temple images, water flowing. First down into the garden 
And then into these strange lands that are named there in the book of, in, in, in chapter 2, these places which do represent the four corners of the earth, which is a way of saying the whole world, this water is flowing. This is the story of a garden and a gardener, but it's more than just a garden. It's a story of a temple. And if it's a story of the temple, then it's also the story of a priest. Um, and in this case, Adam is Significantly, significantly identified as a priest. This is confirmed um, in the way or in the things that God tells him to do and even in the conduct of God in the story. I mean, the first thing he does, this is the first time we hear God's speech since chapter 1. This is a man who speaks with God, who communes with God. That same God who previously spoke all of creation into existence who spoke, let there be light, and there was light. The same God communes with the man here, speaks to him, and gives him instruction, gives him commands. And we should think about all the other stories of the Bible that have a man atop a mountain speaking with God, whether it's Moses, um, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the image we are to see here. When God speaks to man, he tells him about his work and his task. Um, And what he's commanded to do is more than just plant a few roses in the backyard. He's told and instructed to, uh, uh, to, to guard and to keep, to work the garden, but to keep it, to protect it. One of the things Adam is charged with is to be a priest and protect this holy space, to preserve its sanctity. Just as the priest who worked and followed all those codes and laws in the, in, uh, according to the law of Moses to maintain the sanctity, so too Adam is here told to, to guard and protect this holy space, both the garden in general and then that specific holy space, the center, the top of the mountain where he speaks with God. Just like in the law of Moses, God prohibits certain activity. He tells Adam that he is not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he promises him that in the day that he eats of it, he will surely die. So Adam here is given commands by God. He's given sanctions. Um, More detail about his task is laid out here. So the very purpose of Adam And since we're all in Adam, all of mankind comes into clearer focus here as chapter 2 goes on. Adam, in his taking of dominion, in his subduing of the earth, while it doesn't function independently of his relationship to God, that yes, he is to work the ground and he is to uh, subdue this creation. He's given to the creation. He's to love the creation and care for it. Um, to yield its benefits. But all that is done while he's still in relation and obedient to God. That his connection to, to God, his ability to hear him, his, uh, his obligation to follow what he says is very much an essential part of his humanity. That he's not created by God and just let loose to go live as he pleases, but is created to do his work on the earth and remain connected to his creator. He's also, I mean, he's required here to maintain his holy communion 
with God, even as he goes about his work and his business on the earth. And that's a truly remarkable and wonderful idea when we consider what it means to be human, that yes, we have our various vocations and we have, we have jobs to do, we have obligations and duties to our families and to, uh, and to the work that we, that we have upon the earth. And yet, even the smallest details of what we do is not to be, is not to be uh, conducted independent of our relationship with God. We're to he- heed his voice and his word, his commands. We are to uh, consider the consequences and sanctions he lays out for our life it, through every area of our life. No detail is too small. That to be human is to be tied both to this place, to the ground that we have our feet upon, that we work, and it also means to look upwards, to cast our eyes upon uh, the holy God who created all things. Both things are essential to what it means to be human. And as idyllic as this picture is so far, and as remarkable as that calling is, um, it is still wanting because Adam in this picture so far that I painted for you, that he himself is still in need of something. That him independent alone, uh, his relation to the earth and to God on his own is still not complete because he hasn't yet been provided with a bride uh, and a helper. So the last thing I want us to see is point number three, um, a helper and holy expansion. A helper and holy expansion. That as perfect and idyllic and, and as wonderful as this scene has become so far, this grand garden placed upon a holy mountain, Adam there um, working it and serving as a priest, that even though that's the case, God is still not yet ready to call this whole situation good. In fact, he does the opposite in verse 18. He says, there's something not good. There's something not yet perfected or, or complete about this picture yet. It is not good that this man should be alone. And in that case, the God, uh, or God says that I will make him a helper that is fit for him. It is not good that Adam should be alone. There's something not quite right about his status here as the, as the, the solo, uh, only, only man upon the earth. That becomes evident to Adam in verses 19 through 20 as he's taken dominion, as he's uh, acting and behaving in God's image and he's speaking and naming, naming things, all the creatures of the earth, all the birds of the earth, it becomes abundantly clear to him. It becomes glaring uh, that he's not going to be able to fulfill his task to truly be a good gardener, be a good king, be a good ruler. That he's not going to be able to do those things on his own. It becomes clear as he's naming all the creatures. Um, that is, as he sees creatures that are filling the earth, um, he recognizes his inability to do so completely on his own. You consider the creation of man back in Genesis 1, when God says, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, 
from that point forward, he, all the talk about dominion, all the talk about, about creation includes a pair, includes a couple, includes both man and woman. It says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the earth. Um, God created man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. In the male and female, he created them. And in giving them their task to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, um, all instructions, all commands given to this pair, to man and woman together, that are distinct, that are diverse, that are very different, and yet through that diversity, there's also great unity. If you put this language of Genesis 1 in Genesis 2 terms, uh, then man and, and woman are to uh, eventually garden the whole earth, that they're to take the boundaries of this holy space that, that's begun upon this mountain, and they're to push out the, bound, push out the limits further and further until um, this garden reaches those four corners, expand the borders, uh, spread the image of God everywhere. But do so in a way that is in tune with the world and bring uh, God's presence everywhere so that not just the very peak of this one mountain is the Holy of Holies, but the whole earth is where God dwells and God dwells with his people and his people are reigning and ruling on the earth as God rules in heaven. But as we've seen, man is not complete and equipped to fulfill this task without, without a bride. Now, very simply, quite obviously, he can't be, be fruitful and multiply. It's, that's not something that you can do um, on your own. But also, not only that, um, it's more fitting for the man to really reflect, reflect and represent the image of God completely um, when he's demonstrating both the unity and the diversity that is found in God himself. That woman is brought forth from man's body. So there's diversity. But then they're given back to each other to be reunited in one flesh that shows, once again, their unity. God, it says, puts the man to sleep, takes a rib from him, fashions a new wife for, or a wife for Adam. And really it's a shame that verse 23 tell, tells you that he, he just simply says those words. But this is a song. He's singing over his wife. I mean, he's, he just had a wife given to him, and that's amazing, and he, that's cause for him to sing. This, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I mean, after seeing all the beasts and the birds, he's been naming them. He hasn't seen any flesh quite like his. It's a relief to say, at last, finally, here is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken from, from man. And very similarly, just like in, in English, the Hebrew uh, word for both, man, for both man and woman is it's similar sounding. It's ish and isha. It's just it's man and woman, same sort, of, same sort of idea. There's this tight connectedness between the two. And though she is bone of his bone and stands separate, they are reunited in their flesh by holy matrimony, a man and his bride together take dominion or are to take dominion over the earth. 
that the best way to represent the image of God is for a man and his bride to take dominion over the earth, to take over the world, starting at that holy mountain. You know, next week we're going to obviously dive, in, dive into the fall and see how this grand vision comes crashing down. Um, but we see ripples of this original design and intention for man and creation throughout Scripture, and hopefully we also see it throughout, throughout our lives. We see echoes uh, of things like how our relation to the earth is intended to be. And we experience how the world is good at times. When we give ourselves to the world, we receive it as a gift. Now, obviously, sin turns even good things into idolatry, and that's where we go wrong. But when we can see the world as simply creation and as gift, it's there for our enjoyment. And in that way, we tap into what it means to be made in God's image and to live out this Genesis 2 reality. Yes, it happens quite often when you do things like like your garden, or when you spend an honest day of work, or when you take the creation and reshape it and refashion it and make it serve your purposes. Uh, often when you, this, this happens through artistic expression, when you take just the raw materials, uh, you take things like paint or music and you create compositions and you um, draw or paint, write new words. You know, when there are, there's a lot of heartache in life and we feel alienated from each other quite, quite, um, quite often, relationships are broken. But there are times when knowing one another and being known is sweet. There are true visions of, of this unity that is found between Adam and, and Eve, his bride. And it doesn't just come through marital relations, but also through deep friendships or the relationship you have to your children, to know another human uh, can be wonderful. And yet we know because of sin, we're prone to abuse one another and to mistreat each other. And even at times, our relation to God can be and is, and is sweet. I mean, sweet communion with the Lord. Have you ever been, you know, been somewhere where you, where you hear a song or you or you're reading the Bible, or you hear a sermon, and it just seems as though it's just you and the Lord, and he's speaking to you directly. Those are wonderful, sweet times, all echoes of this primordial earth. I think sometimes we can, uh, people can, can take the telling of the, of the story this way and, and and disregard it because, quite obviously, there's a lot of symbolism. There's imagery being used here um, that is that that might sound familiar to other, you know, to other pagan stories or or myths. I mean, quite clearly, as we hear about the story and we hear about this holy mountain upon the earth with with God dwelling at the top and there's water pouring out and touching places. I mean, we do many of us instinctively think of pagan stories that we've heard, whether we're thinking about about Mount Olympus and the Greek pantheon or Asgard. We're watching a Marvel movie and we see a similar imagery even, even depicted for us on, on screen. But the important thing for us here is that I think, and as many Christians have pointed out, is that this story is the great true story, the story from which all other pagan myths uh, have been derived. 
But there's a truth revealed here, here for us to capture and to hang on to. This, this like grand and wonderful image of the original man with God um, in a unspoiled creation. And as we also consider here the, the many ways in which our world has been broken, in which this picture has been destroyed for us and how disillusioned we can be, I hope that as we look at a story like this, it does help us be reaffirmed and reestablished in our faith as we see Christ come to fulfill so much of what is laid out for us here. Hopefully, our hope in Christ can restore our hope um, in the original intentions that God has for his creation and for humanity. In many ways, even though it seems as though God's presence on earth has been lost, as we read from, from John earlier, that his holy presence upon earth has been restored through Christ, who is the word of God who came to dwell among us. That as we consider these wonderful ideas like a mountain of God, holy temples, um, that Christ has come to reveal that he himself is that temple that we've all hoped for. That he is the way in which God will reestablish um, our dominion upon the earth and dwell with us. I mean, it's no coincidence that Christ comes and he tells people that he offers them living water like the woman at the well, water that flows from the temple into the four corners of the earth. That water is still available to us now, but only through uh, our faith in Christ. He's promised to restore us not just to this creation, which is fallen, um, which he has. So he does, he does fun things like he, you know, like he turns water into wine. He keeps the party going. He gives this world back his gift, but not just this gift. He also promises us an untainted and unfallen earth in the world that is to come. In the new creation, he promises to give to us where all of our work will go, uh, will go without, without hardship, an earth that is, that is pristine and yet is there available for us to work, to image God there as well. And if anything, uh, or, or, and, and we'll end with this, he also gives us a true vision of what it means to be an upright man who goes about seizing dominion upon the earth along with his bride. He shows us how to be restored to one another as well because the, because the story of the gospel is the story of Christ and his bride. And though he was going to go through uh, incredible lengths to win that bride back to himself, he has accomplished or, and, and he has set in motion that very thing, that he has joined the church to himself uh, through his death upon the cross and being raised to newness of life. And he's joined us to him so that we, as a people, might be fruitful and multiply upon the earth, making disciples from every tribe, tongue, and nation, going about in a very unexpected way, but the but in the same way, nonetheless, of filling the earth with God's glory and with his presence. May this sweeping and grand vision that is there for us in Genesis 2 bolster our strength or, or, or bolster our faith, and the strength of our faith in Christ. You know, to meditate 
on the beginnings, the original intentions of man, creation, and relationship with God, when seen rightly through the lens of Christ, it, it is a meditation for us on all that Christ has done for us. And also to meditate on Christ illuminates these stories of beginnings. May both things work uh, to lift up your hearts and to help you as you journey in this world, yearning for the day. When our faith will be turned to sight, um, we will be restored fully and completely be know, or know as we are fully known by God and be given to a new creation. We can resume this story uh, after all the things that have gone wrong have been made right. Let's pray.